You know, there's a lot that can happen in 40 days. Uh, 40 days is almost six weeks. Like 40 days, 40 days ago was May 2nd, which maybe not seem like long ago, but you know, the weather was very different. Kids were still in school. Summer hadn't arrived. It was 40 days between the day that Jesus rose from the dead until the day that he ascended into heaven. So it was 40 days for the disciples coming from that first shock of hearing that Jesus was risen, that, that he was alive, that he was who he said he was, to the moment where he actually went on and left them for the mission. And I imagine those 40 days, the shock probably wore off a little bit, right? It was still incredible and exciting, but you know, 40 days is a long time to kind of reconcile that in your mind. And I think about that period of time for the disciples between the moment of Jesus' resurrection and the moment that he actually went on to heaven. And I think back to when Jesus first called his disciples and how they probably had no idea. In fact, there was no way they could know how following Jesus would change them. Those that Jesus was closest with, his disciples, they were not very experienced when they were first called. In fact, they were pretty young. They were not very religious A few of them were fishermen, and Jesus even used a very peculiar phrase. He said, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. But Jesus must have been pretty convincing because they left everything. These disciples of Jesus, they left their families, their careers, the plans that they had for the future just to follow him. They centered their entire lives around Jesus. They lived together. They learned from Jesus, and their lives became all about Jesus. And then after this period of time, after they had followed him for three years, they had been trained. They had learned about the kingdom of God, about how to do the mission, how to to be on mission with Jesus. Jesus ultimately goes to the cross. And I imagine that moment where he is executed, it challenges everything that they believed. Jesus comes down from the cross, he's in the tomb, and I imagine they're scared. Did they give their lives up for nothing? Did did actually what they believed in, was it actually something that was true? And then three days later, Jesus rises from the dead. The shock of that, the confirmation, the relief of that for his disciples. And then 40 days, the resurrected Christ is with them. he's, He's walking with them. He's talking with them. And then he meets with them on a mountain. This is the setting for our text, uh, the setting of our text today in Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 16. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So the disciples are standing on a mountain with Jesus. They're worshiping Jesus because, again, at this moment, they know that he is God. Any questions that they had about it, he's worthy of their praise. He is worthy of the worship. And the text says in verse 17 that some still doubted. I don't know about you. That, I just find that completely crazy. Like, they'd seen everything that Jesus had done. He had taught them everything that they needed to know. They had experienced miracles. They had seen and known that Jesus had risen from the dead, and still they doubted. Just as a quick aside, I can relate to that. Because even in my own life, even the ways that I've seen God work, the ways that I've seen him, uh, his evidence in my life, there are still times that I doubt Jesus. So you see a line like this, and it's comforting for me to know that we're not alone. 
that Jesus' disciples, they're, they're still working it out even here on this mountainside. You know, being a disciple of Jesus is an ongoing process of submitting your entire life to Jesus, of growing in your continual need daily for Jesus. Continues in verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. So Jesus is getting ready to leave, and he gives them the, the, their, their final commission. In fact, this is a text that's popularly known as the Great Commission. Just as Jesus had called them to follow him and, and to be changed by him, they are now to go out and find others that they would in turn train up in the same way that they had been taught. Go and make disciples of all nations. And the emphasis here is on that phrase, those two words, make disciples. In fact, if you were to break down the grammar here, making disciples is the imperative command. It's their call. Jesus is telling them exactly what they should do. He commands them to, to go and make disciples, and then he ascends up into heaven. And again, I can just imagine the disciples standing there on the mountainside. They're watching him go up. It's probably this crazy scene that's there. And, and I imagine it in the back of their mind, okay, it's, it seems like it's for real this time, right? This, this mixed emotions, like, is he going to come back? You know, nobody knows what Jesus is going to do. Like, they're not sure about what's happening. But I imagine they'd know the significance of the moment. And in, in this, the, the weight of what's happening there, I wonder if maybe some of them, you know, might have missed it. And luckily, Matthew was taking notes for us because he writes it down. But Jesus' final call to his disciples is this command, go and make disciples. This is the mission that they are to continue. And consequently for us, 2,000 years later, the fruit of years and years of the church going on and making disciples, it is also our call. It is also our mission. It's the mission of the church. And so if you consider yourself a follower of Christ, it's non-negotiable. You are called to make disciples. And so obviously the question that we should ask ourselves Individually, collectively, are we making disciples? How are we doing? We're at the end of a series called When I Grow Up, and this entire series has been on this topic of discipleship. Of, and, and discipleship ultimately is the process of becoming more like Jesus, of growing up into spiritual maturity, that the ultimate goal of every believer is not heaven, rather it's spiritual maturity. And so while heaven is our final destination, there's this process that God wants to bring us on. And in that process, he matures us. He develops us. That he's working in each and every one of us. Pastor Allen said at the beginning of this series, if, if there's a child who isn't growing physically or emotionally, if there's a child who maybe isn't growing in their learning and their education. It's cause for concern. And similarly, if we aren't growing in our spiritual development, it's cause for concern. We should be growing as disciples. But fortunately, you know, it's not a process where you can flip a switch and all of a sudden tomorrow say, okay, today is the day that I'm going to become spiritually mature. 
There's a, there's a process to it. Uh, a few years ago in the NBA, there was a, a phrase that must have been pretty popular because I don't follow the NBA at all. And I heard this phrase, and it was this phrase, trust the process. And some of you may not be familiar with that. The Philadelphia 76ers, uh, up to that point, had a terrible run in the NBA, a losing record. Uh, the fans were frustrated. The owners were frustrated. And they had this general manager named Sam Hinkie. And Sam coined this phrase. He put, started putting the, the pieces together. He started recruiting in a certain way. Uh, and he said, trust the process. People would get frustrated and angry as they, they still lost. And he said, trust the process. And sure enough, years passed and the process continued and they started winning games. Trust the process is a phrase that's also used in recovery ministries. In fact, many recovery ministries had used that phrase prior to the NBA. Trust the process. The steps work if you work it. Trust the process. It's a good phrase for when you're working on something that takes a little bit of time before you actually see the fruits of your labor. I don't know if you're like me, but you know, since the start of the year, I've been in this kind of workout regimen, and I look in the mirror, and I'm like, I don't know if I see the difference yet. I don't know if I see you know, all this sweat and all this early morning. Does it actually make a difference? Trust the process. You don't notice the change right away. I love talking to farmers around this time of year. You know, the, the seed is in the soil. You know, they're watching all the different elements that are out there. You don't actually get to see the fruit of your labor day one, but most farmers have learned to trust the process. You don't get to see this change overnight. And that phrase works for discipleship. Trust the process. We are a work in process. And I don't believe he did. We don't see it in scripture, but... Trust the process is a phrase that I could imagine Jesus using. Because if you read through the Gospels, you see you know, who it was that Jesus was trusting there on the mountainside, that group of men. And if you looked at just their credentials, if you looked at just the, you know, their qualifications, you'd probably have some questions like, Jesus, is this actually going to work? Like, are, are you really trusting these guys to carry the mission forward? And I, I can just imagine Jesus saying, trust the process. Like, there's been a development that's happening in their lives. They didn't look impressive from the outside in, but Jesus saw the potential. I think of that same phrase, and I look at us, look at the church. And I can imagine, you know, people look at us and could ask the question, man, will they ever get it? Will these, these people who claim Jesus, will they ever actually put it into practice? Like these are the ones that Jesus is trusting with his mission. And Jesus is saying, trust the process. He believes in you. He believes in me. He's committed to us. And, you know, I, I imagine they look at us and, and, and what, it is, what is it that he actually believes in us? He trusts us, his people, to carry forward his mission. Because you are plan A when it comes to Jesus' method of making disciples. He could have done it supernaturally. He could have done it through visions. But he chose to use his people to go about the business of making disciples, of developing people who don't just trust in Jesus, but who look and act and think more like Jesus. And this is a work not just of us, but it's in partnership with the Holy Spirit that lives inside us and empowers us. In Acts chapter 1, it's the same scene on the mountainside. And, and Jesus says these words. He says, you will receive power 
when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit will actually, it's better for me to leave because the Holy Spirit will come and it will give you power. You will go in the power and the presence of God. It's God who ultimately enables people to go and be my witnesses. You will share about what God has done and is doing in your life in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and the world. And I love the way that this kind of lays out this sequential method of saying, okay, what is our mission field? Where are we called to go and be witnesses for him? Jerusalem would have represented the city that they found themselves in. And so for us, Jesus might have said, go out into Mount Pleasant or Alma, St. John's, Shepherd, Clare, Ithaca, Ovid, go, go out into your cities and tell about the good news of Jesus. Judea represented the state that Jerusalem was in. And so for us, that might be go out into all of Michigan and share about the good news of Jesus, share the gospel, talk about what he's doing in your life. Samaria would have been the next state over. And so for us, you know, you might think of Ohio. and We all know those Buckeyes need to hear about Jesus. And then go out even into the rest of the world. There's a sense of saying you don't have to go overseas to be on mission. And while overseas missionaries, I think the world of them, other people groups that they're ministering to, we each have a sphere of saying where we are, God calls us to mission. And we can't do it without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, in fact, is instrumental in the discipleship process. If you are not submitted and filled with the Holy Spirit, you cannot carry out the mission that Jesus is calling you towards. And here's the alarming reality, that as it relates to God's mission for his people, most Christians go their entire lives never reaching a single person who is lost. They go their entire lives never actually having a conversation with someone you know, that leads them to faith in Christ. Most Christians never step into a role of either actively being discipled by somebody else or, let alone, making disciples themselves. So here at the end of the series, I ask this question, are we content with that? Are you okay with that? There's an author and speaker that I love by the name of Jeff Vanderstelt, and a few years ago he wrote this book called Saturate that was talking about discipleship and kind of the everyday living of our lives, and there's three environments that he talks about where discipleship can happen. And thinking about this imperative of saying, how can we be more intentional when it comes to discipleship, I, I want to leave you with this as we finish this series. And so these are three environments where discipleship can take place, and the first is this, life on life. Life-on-life -life relationship, individual connection with another person who is actively, intentionally discipling you. This is the first environment where discipleship can take place. If my wife and I are sitting in a hotel room and we're flipping through the channels, more often than not, we usually land on HGTV. We love HGTV, you know, all the different shows that are on there. Uh, and a lot of the shows, uh, I love the shows that deal with restoration, Right? There's an old piece of furniture or an old house, 
and they've covered it over with layers of paint and you know they've covered over the facade and, and and inevitably on these shows they start taking off the layers they go to restore it it's always way more work than you thought it was going to be but eventually you begin to see this beauty that's underneath and I, and I was thinking about that and you know this idea of, of layer upon layer that we've used to cover up that that can relate to the way that we live our lives wounds that we carry hurts, things that have been said to us. So we cover it up, we put layer upon layer, we don't put ourselves out there, and as a result, sometimes it can be really hard to let other people see the real us. And covering our brokenness, hiding our need for restoration, it can, it can seem like that's actually easier than restoring to where we were meant to be, but covering it up, it doesn't change the problem. Some of you are listening to this. You have areas of your life that you're not willing to let other people see. And you mask it. But you know those things that you hold close to the chest. You know the hurts that you carry. And more than you knowing, God knows. God sees the real us. He sees through the layers and he's not satisfied when we cover it up. I believe that God wants to restore us to make us more like our original design, and that's, that's part of the discipleship process, peeling away layers that we've used to cover up, bringing our brokenness to the surface so that we can heal and we can grow and we can mature. And this is the work that can often happen in life-on-life discipling relationships. Lived up close so that we are visible and accessible to one another. Lived with enough access and proximity that we can't hide the junk that is happening in our lives. And sometimes those hurts that we have covered can be so deep that it actually requires life-on-life relationship with a professional counselor or a therapist. But for many of us, you know, that that life-on-life relationship may just be with another brother or sister in Christ. The place where you can be vulnerable, authentic and open. Jesus, he spent more than three years with this small group of 12 disciples. They ate together. They worked together. They, they spent 24 hours a day together. They celebrated together. I don't know if you guys have watched The, the Chosen on TV, but I think they, they do a great job of, of displaying this. They were up close and personal. His disciples saw Jesus in practice in all sorts of situations and they learned, they began to know, oh, this is how Jesus would respond and it impacted the way that they acted. Being in a life-on-life environment also allowed Jesus to be able to watch them in action. I think being that close, that, that, you know, being that much time together, he was able to peel back the layers to see where they struggled, to actually coach them and move them forward. He lived his life with access to these 12 disciples. And that kind of close relationship is powerful. If you want to be disciples who are formed to be more like Jesus, then you have to have people in your life that have access to who you are who are up close and personal, those who you trust to see the areas where you struggle, those who when you mess up and when you fail, those who you can confess to, who can challenge you, who can push you. And generally, that life-on-life relationship cannot happen on Sunday mornings. And, And it typically doesn't happen in a classroom. And sometimes it can be messy, it can be uncomfortable, at times it can hurt, but that is the type of authentic relationships that we need. 
And the beauty of it is that those are relationships that can happen anywhere. While you're hanging out at somebody's house, watching a sporting event, enjoying a meal, going out for coffee, going to the park, it can happen anywhere, but it does not happen automatically. It takes intentionality. Can I just be honest with you? I struggle with this. Like, like lives that are busy and you know, going from one thing to the next. We talk about that a lot that's here. That fights against this idea of being accessible and connected to other people. You know, over most of our adult life, my wife and I have had people that have come and, and been part of our, our household, have come in and lived with us. And before, a few years ago, it was college students. We had a number of college students that would come and be with us. And we always warned them at the beginning, man, you get a front row seat to all of the messiness that's in the Mora house. You get to see when I'm at my best, but you also get to see me when I'm at my worst. Over the last couple years, we've had the joy of being foster parents, and as foster parents, again, these kids come into your family. They get to see the way you operate, who you are beyond, behind closed doors. And, you know, there have been incredible successes over the last number of years of having people part of our family who are coming from the outside. But I could probably give you more examples of times that I've messed up, times that I've failed, that I've gotten it wrong, and just a realization that, that I'm growing you think about this idea of life-on-life life relationship, and sometimes conflict can have this you know, powerful impact on there. And I, I don't know if you're like me, but I, I think I grew up with this sense of, of thinking that conflict was bad. Conflict is something to be avoided. But the older I get, the more that I'm convinced that conflict is sometimes a sign that something's being brought to the surface that we're actually able to deal with. That if handled well, conflict is something that can actually produce in us a sense of maturity, a a sense of Christ-likeness. In a discipleship relationship, you have to be able to have access to each other. We're able to work through these things, even when it's hard, especially when it's hard and challenging. Life on life, do you have that kind of relationship in your life? And and I don't think, sometimes we don't have to look very far. Sometimes this, this can be a spouse some of you have kids in your house and you think, man, I am, I'm trying to raise up these little kids who love Jesus. Discipleship can happen in your home. But discipleship also should and could happen outside of those places. Do you have that kind of relationship in your life? And if not, where can you find it? Some of you listening to this, you may be like, man, I am relational. I am outgoing. I love people. I'm just connected with, with other people in relationships. But what you may need to move in is this idea of saying, how can I be more intentional with the relationships that I have? How do we strip back the layers? How, how do we talk about things that actually matter? Others of you may be like, man, I am so not relational. Like, I, I have to work at it, and maybe there's a call for you to, to step out of your comfort zone and put yourself out there to find the sense of life-on-life relationship. But discipleship doesn't just happen in one-on-one meetings. It also uh, leads us up to our next environment. Discipleship also requires life in community. If you've been around Community Church for any measure of time, we often say, if there was one thing that we would ask you to do besides coming and worshiping with us on Sundays, it would be to join a group. Groups are so core to the way that we do the Christian life as a church. And if you're not part of a group, my encouragement to you would be to find an opportunity to join a group. 
Community groups are where discipling relationships often take place. And now discipleship doesn't only happen in community groups, but community groups absolutely are an intentional place where we hope or we're working to make it happen. In the Bible, the church, the body of Christ is, is referred to as one body with many parts. In fact, in the book of Ephesians, Paul lays out five different gifts. He says some are called to be apostles or missionaries who bring the message out. Some are called to be prophets, to have a good word that they're able to share with other people from the Lord. Some are called to be evangelists. Some are called to be shepherds, caring for the flock. And and some are called to be teachers. Now, Jesus embodies all of these gifts, all of these roles in one person, but most of us, actually all of us, maybe we might have one, maybe two of these gifts. And I was thinking about this in context of what we're talking about, and it it affirmed for me just the value of community, that it's in community with other people, other believers, that you actually see the the gifts expressed. And if you're by yourself or even just one-on-one, you don't have the full expression of what the body is meant to be. This is why we need the church. Different gifts are made available. Different gifts are put into action. And those gifts also have an impact on the way that we engage and challenge each other. Over the years that we've been here at the church, my wife and I, we have been part of groups and we have led groups. And and I I just think back over the people at Community Church across all the campuses who we feel the closest to. There are people that we've been in groups with before. People who we prayed with. People who we have counseled through difficult circumstances or who have counseled us, who have shared about their struggles and been vulnerable. And, And, you know, we've gotten to know each other. And having been involved in a number, uh, in groups ministry for a number of years, the last couple years have been more challenging for groups than ever before. But I, I am convinced that groups are an essential environment where we can grow. And even though groups have been incredibly challenged by, I think, just the busyness and the million things that divide us the last couple years, our church is still filled with groups that are thriving, where people are growing, where people are connected and opening God's word together, where people are known and are actually knowing others, where people share their gifts and meet other people's needs, where people are on mission together and grow up into spiritual maturity. It's an absolutely beautiful thing. And over the course of this next year, there are a number of ways that we're going to be talking about where our groups are going to be kicked into a new gear, focused even more on discipleship. And if you're not currently in a group, if you've not been in a group before, you've been waiting for your moment at the end of this summer, leading into fall, I hope you'll take a jump into life with community. But it's not just being in community with other people. The third and final environment I want to talk about is the idea of also having life on mission. Life on mission. And this was something that, that Jesus just modeled absolutely so well in the Gospels. Inviting his followers not just to be with him, but to also be on mission with him. I imagine... I want you to imagine, imagine you're sitting in the, the, you know, operation room waiting for surgery, and you're waiting for the anesthesiologist to come in and put you to sleep, you know, everything's going good, and the surgeon pops in, and the, and the surgeon says, man, I just want to thank you for trusting me uh, to, be my, to be my very first surgery. I've been studying a ton, 
I, I, I aced the test. Uh, I, I've been, uh, you know, I've, I've read every book on the topic, but I just have to admit, I have never actually been in the operating room before, right? This is day one, uh, and, and I just got to let you know, I'm going to be solo in there, but I'm very confident everything is going to go very well. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the way surgery works, right? Like there's not, after your classes, after you get through all your education, residency is required. There's a period of time where young surgeons, new surgeons, they, they watch. And after watching an expert for a while, somebody who's done countless surgeries, they begin to you know, participate a little bit and help. And then as they begin to take the lead on surgeries, they have someone who's watching over their shoulder and, and encouraging them. And, and, and you know, there's this, this supervision that's taking place. I think disciple making should be the same. You know, that's ultimately what Jesus did with his disciples. They, they were disciple makers in residency. He, he asked them to follow him, to join him on mission. And at first they watched. And over this process, they began to be put into the game. Jesus gave them things to do. And he trained them up in how to be disciples and how to make disciples. He, he taught them the basics of what making disciples actually meant. And while they were on mission together, they were making disciples as he was teaching them how to make disciples disciples. They were with him when he was teaching the crowds, when he healed. They, they saw his compassion for people. They, they saw the power of God at work all around him. And, and Jesus eventually comes to a place of sending them out. And he doesn't send them out alone. He doesn't send them solo. He sends them together. And they come back and they share their successes, and they also share about the ways that they messed up. And if you read through the Gospels, they messed up a lot, but they learned and they grew. And the best training for mission happens while on mission. I think of the many years that I've been here at the church and you know, the, the countless short-term missions trips that we've sent out and trips that I've been able to be on. And I remember early on, there always seemed to be this moment on a short-term missions trip when the team has been prayed up and they're all prepared and they're ready to get put into action and they're in the field uh, and, and something challenging happens. Something they didn't expect doesn't go according to plan. You know, they, they start to get on each other's nerves and there seems to be this resistance, this challenge. And, and at first, you know, that used to kind of like shock me, but I've, I've come to almost expect that when it comes to these short-term missions trips. And there's this realization that I've had, those who go on trips are often impacted more themselves than those that they go to serve. That there's this development that's powerful that happens on these short-term missions trip because God uses mission to change us. When we are in action for him, that is where he actually develops us and he grows us. The best training for mission happens while on mission. And you see this throughout Jesus' ministry on earth with his, with his disciples. On mission, their incorrect maybe understanding of the kingdom of God or what God was trying to teach them, it would come to light and then Jesus would be able to address it and it would show their continual need for God. Bring, being on mission brings us back again and again and again to our continual need for Jesus. Because Jesus will build his church. He won't fail in his mission. And all the while, while it's God's work to build the church, he calls those who follow him to join in the mission that will change us and grow us and develop us in the process. Are you on mission for Christ? 
think you can really see this in the early church. In the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus ascends into heaven and the Holy Spirit comes uh, days later at Pentecost and he empowers the people and they go out and they begin sharing the good news of Jesus and there's this radical kind of movement of the church that happens, but they're persecuted. They're, they're put on trial, they lose possessions, they lose family relationships, but they grew in their love for God and they see him at work and they grow in their love for each other. The mission reveals their need for God's help and as a result, while on mission, they see God at work. Sometimes those of us who follow Jesus, we want to experience the presence and the power of God apart from the mission of God. Let me say that again. Sometimes those who follow Jesus want to experience the power and presence of God apart from the mission of God. We can incorrectly think that we can grow up into spiritual maturity apart from taking part in the mission of God to make disciples. And friends, it's just not possible. Jesus didn't come to earth, take on human flesh, live among us, live his entire life as a servant to all, suffer and die on a cross just so that maybe we would go to church for an hour a week. Jesus wants so much more. He wants it all. He wants all of your life. He wants all of your time, those who choose to follow him. And not that you would need to spend all your time in church or you know, all your time in prayer, but that every place you go, you would live with the realization that the spirit of God goes with you, that all the time you are on mission for him as witnesses of his goodness and his mercy. Now, some of us may have believed that being a Christian is primarily a one-time decision that we make at some point in time. And the decision to give your life to Christ is one of the most important decisions that you could ever make, but it's just the first decision. It's the starting line. Following Jesus is so much more than a Sunday morning activity because Jesus doesn't want to just be Lord of our Sunday mornings. He wants to be Lord of our life. For some of you, I realize, you know, you, you may be still exploring what it means to follow Jesus, and you might be in a place of, you know, be, being curious about the gospel, but for those who profess to follow him, this is imperative. You know, for some of you, you may not be thinking about the mission, and you may be missing, as a result, something that is incredibly important to the life of a follower of Jesus. Jesus didn't die so that we would be church attenders. He didn't die so maybe we would swear less or, you know, or, or give to the church sometimes. He died so that we would experience him. And we would experience him in such a way that it would compel us to go and make disciples. That it would compel us to tell people about what Jesus has done on our behalf. Friends, that's my hope for you, that you would experience God that way. That's our, our vision for community church, that we would make disciples. Because church, if we miss this, we have the danger of simply being spectators, of being consumers, of being ministry critics, 
And, and we may never transform, we may never grow up, we might stay in this place of spiritual infancy, and, and as a result, we don't become more like Christ. You know, if we miss this, we don't move towards obedience and accountability, we never serve with our time, we never become more generous or more loving the way that God wants us to. We may learn more and more while at the same time becoming less and less obedient. And friends, you may miss out on the purpose, the amazing purpose that God has for your life. This is something that you can do. This is, this is something that you can step into, tie into the Holy Spirit and take a next step. And, and I realize right now, summer is actually a terrible time to try to jump into something new because everybody's on vacation. But I don't want you to miss the opportunity to respond. And maybe right now you're feeling the sense of the Holy Spirit just nudging you in a certain direction. And so we want to give you an opportunity to respond this morning. The QR code that we have uh, up throughout uh, in the mornings and, and actually is on the screen right now. If you scan that, there is a place where you can actually opt in to sign up for a way to respond to this message. And so some of you may feel this nudge to say, man, I, I have been in a group for years I know that God has given me the gifts to be able to lead a group, but I've just not been willing or not been able or not felt the nudge, but I'm going to take a step right now and I'm going to learn more about what it looks like to be able to lead a group. Some of you have maybe been on the sidelines and have not you know, put your gifts into action and you may say, okay, I'm going to actually sign up to say, man, I want to figure out how can I join a serve team at the church there's a discipleship training initiative that we're working through right now, and some of you may say, you know what, I want to be the first to sign up. I want to be the first to go through this training this next year. I want to learn what Jesus wants to do. I want to partner with the mission of this local church. Community church, discipleship is the work of God's people of men and women having life-on-life -life relationships with other people in the context of community, being on mission together in a way that transforms them, that makes them begin to think and act and, and look more like Jesus as, the, as a result. And don't miss the magnitude of that statement. This is God's plan for your life that you would grow up into spiritual maturity and then in turn, as a result of the life change that you experience, the undeniable work of God in your life, that you would begin to help others grow up in the faith in turn, that you would make disciples. This is God's plan for his church. This is God's plan for his people. This is his mission, that he would use you and he would use me to build his church. Church, as we close today, would you stand with me? And let's worship together.